Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by Ubico, makers of the YubiKey hardware authenticator thingy. Uh, Ubico's chief solutions officer, Jared Chong, will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about why consumer-focused implementations of WebAuthn, like Apple's passkeys, aren't really suitable for enterprise use just yet. That is coming up later, but first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, uh, you know, the the US House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has sparked a cyber apocalypse. The world is ending. Oh, no, wait, wait. That information is incorrect. (laughs) There's been a few isolated uh, DDoS attacks in response to this visit, and um, everything is quite normal. Yes, we've seen reports of some denial of service attacks against some kind of government-related websites, the uh, website of the Prime Minister, National Defence Ministry, Foreign Affairs, uh, and the airport in Taiwan. Uh, Those didn't look particularly effective. Like, they were big enough to work, but not big enough to be exciting, uh, seemed to be the feedback we were getting. And, you know, after all of the sabre-rattling on the Twitters, uh, we, you know, I guess we were expecting a little more than just a few, you know, kind of weak-source denial of service attacks, but... Probably better than the alternatives. They don't even look like they're necessarily government directed. This, you know, this smells like patriotic kids, basically. And I, I, I kind of <laughs> got the sense that things were going to work out a little bit okay when, uh, as Nancy Pelosi's plane was in the air last night, all of the wolf warriors on Twitter, uh, you know, these Chinese uh, Communist Party mouthpieces were awfully quiet um, while the plane <laughs> was in the air. So they'd clearly been corked. Uh, and of course, as soon as the um, the wheels hit the tarmac, they they started up again. But we're a little bit less. Um uh, they seemed a little bit less agitated than they were in the six weeks leading up to the visit, where they were advocating for the Chinese air force to shoot her plane down. Yes, I guess a little bit of restraint uh, from the Chinese government is always a nice thing to see. But uh, yeah, this uh, this conflict, well, hopefully it just sticks to crappy denial of service, and we don't see you know superpowers duking it out. Yeah, we got a few DDoSs and uh, some military exercises near Taiwan instead of nuclear fireballs, so that's always a good thing. Good uh, trade. Was, good trade. Yes, I was joking with a friend in DC last night as her plane uh, uh, was in the air that. Um, uh, you know, just reminding him to wrap a wet towel around his head to to avoid the fallout. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's all it's all worked out fine. Now, uh, some funny stuff happened this week. Uh, it was yesterday, actually, uh, in in the Australian time zone. Anyway, um, tell us about this uh, Nomad Bridge hack, Adam, because to me, this is the modern day equivalent of you know when an armored car crashes and all the money spills out onto the road and the townsfolk come and start gathering up scooping up the hundred dollar bills this is the crypto equivalent of that walk us through it so uh, nomad is a cryptocurrency bridge that handles exchanging you know currencies and smart contract information and stuff uh, between various blockchains uh, somebody found a bug uh, that lets you kind of move money through that exchange or through that uh, that bridge in a way that lets you you know kind of withdraw more money than you had put through uh, they went ahead and did that, and because the blockchain is an immutable record of all the things that are happening, somebody else spotted those weird transactions uh, and were able to essentially duplicate the attack, and then it started spreading. And yeah, we had a, a pile on with you know hundreds, maybe thousands of transactions, you know, looting all of the money and assets uh, of this bridge, something like 156 million US dollars worth of uh, of crypto of various sorts nicked. Um, and yeah, some people uh, have been like negotiating with the company on the blockchain, saying, "Hey, they're white hats." who are just going to hold this money in, you know, safely for them, having stolen it, uh, and they might get some back. Uh, and other people have just been looting. But, uh, you know, it turned into a frenzy. And, you know, some people have done this in ways that, you know, 
maybe they'll get away with it. And some people have just done it, you know, from accounts that are quite clearly linkable to them. And it's just a, yeah, as you say, it's a sort of frenzy, uh, you know, that's going to end badly probably for people who are not great at crime and all the people who made real money uh, early on will probably get away with it. Yeah, yeah. I just love it though because it's like a viral exploit that yes. <laughs> makes money instantly. You know, it was like a <laughs> accidental cash giveaway um, that everybody got in on. It was just, and it was just incredible watching the funds disappear in real time. You know, it was yes. like everyone, everyone was just popcorning the hell out of it. You know, it was Catalan yeah. who, um, Catalan Kimpanu who alerted me to it when it was happening. He's like, man, you got to check this out sort of thing. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. Um, and look, staying with crypto news and Lily Hay Newman over at Wired, uh, her and Andy Greenberg have written up this really fascinating story about a guy named Roman uh, Sterlingov, who is accused of laundering $336 million through a service known as Bitcoin Fog. Now, he's going to plead not guilty, and he's challenging uh, Chainalysis, uh, Chainalysis's findings, and saying, look, you don't really have any hard uh, evidence. A lot of this is just, you know, all of this blockchain analysis stuff, and I don't think it's very good. Now, you know, that sounds like a bit of a crank defense to me, and I don't really rate his chances, but he does have a good lawyer. Uh, Tor Eklund is, um, is actually his solicitor acting in this, in this thing. And um, I think it's going to be one to watch. I, I do suspect it's not going to go his way. And that will sort of prove that this type of analysis is acceptable evidence, but it's interesting to see it get challenged. Yeah, I mean, I guess this was going to happen eventually because there's been such a reliance on blockchain analysis and following money around uh, to try and tie up modern, you know, the modern cybercrime investigations because they have so little to go. And obviously, the opsec of people doing these crimes is getting better as they as they learn. Um, I mean, this guy was saying, for example, that he was a user of Bitcoin Fog, that he had moved some funds through it, but he wasn't an administrator of it, uh, and. But then you know, didn't they of, also find that he like registered the original domain or something? And he's like, I have no memory of doing that. You know, like it just <laughs> the whole thing feels a bit, yeah, good. Yeah, like try I it think, on, guy. You know, yes, yeah. But I mean, somebody, you know, somebody's going to try this, and you know, we, you know, it would be terrible if they stuck someone in jail on the basis of bad analysis, right? So yeah. it is, you know, it, it's work that we, you know, we should do. In this case, no, this guy does feel a little bit, um, maybe not going to work for him. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a much safer thing to say than he's clearly guilty. We would never actually say that, uh, of course, because he's entitled to the presumption of innocence. And I don't know. I haven't really looked at it uh, that closely. But certainly when you just read the story, you're like, ooh, okay. Um, I don't know. There's there's that sort of geek defense, isn't there, where they say, well, that technically doesn't mean this. So therefore, you know, you can't convict me and courts will usually just say, lol, we can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, nerd warrior Reddit defense, yeah. generally not super effective against the judge that has no time for your bullshit. Yeah, yeah, basically. So um, I guess, you know, let's just see if it actually turns into an interesting test of that sort of evidence. Uh, what else have we got here? Yeah, so there's been some research into, you know, we spoke about it a few weeks ago that uh, NIST has put forward four candidate algorithms uh, for certification as, you know, post-quantum standards. And uh, one of them looks like it's dropped out of the running because you can factor it in like an hour on, a, you know, calculator CPU, basically. <laughs> yes, uh, the attack came out of a university, um, I think it was a combination of work with a number of universities, looking into the kind of quite novel mechanism uh, that one of the, these candidate ciphers was using. It's called the psych, the super singular isogeny key encapsulation mechanism. And uh, like the math behind this, like the actual cipher itself and 
the attack I is just I, I have no idea what they're talking about but nevertheless they seem to have come up with some kind of novel aspect of it and the guy who actually well, one of the people that originally worked on developing the cipher basically says like this is you know, the maths is now so complicated that even cryptographers don't have the necessary depth of understanding of the sort of abstract math and it takes like legitimate abstract math you know professors to be able to look at these things and a lot of the other candidates uh, which I think the other remaining so the, there was initial four and then there's like a bonus group of four and this is one of the bonus ones and of the the ones that are the primary contenders none of them use a mechanism that's exactly kind of relatable to this so uh, it's but you know I guess the point that is really interesting is that we are still finding novel you know mathematical attacks on these ciphers because they are using constructs that are just really novel um, yeah and you know we don't want to rush into picking one but I also think the point you're making is that the type of research that breaks these things look, you know, it looks more like a PhD than a paper these days. Yeah, yes, exactly. And also it just takes a whole bunch of time. Like mm. we, you know, we will have to wait and see, you know, and we, we have this sort of race between how effective quantum, you know, cryptography breaking techniques become and having to build post-quantum algorithms. And those two races run at different speeds. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that, that's going to be a problem for us. Now, this next story is has got us all a little bit confused at Risky Biz HQ. Uh, it deals with the bre- a breach of the US federal court docket system, essentially. Now, after the SolarWinds uh, uh, event, um, it was revealed that there were attackers in the US court system. Now we've got news reports popping up where the head of the House Judiciary uh, uh, Committee, uh, Gerald uh, Nadler, has said, oh my God, the scope of this cybersecurity breach is, is uh, you know, just massive. But they're saying it's unrelated to SolarWinds. Now, I don't know if that means that the breach that was announced in 2020 was actually... Um, uh, now, I don't know if it means that the breach that was announced in 2020 if it's the same breach and it just turns out it didn't have anything to do with SolarWinds or if they're talking about a different breach that they presumably discovered when they did incident response on the SolarWinds event, right? So there's a few little details here that are uh, uh, just a little bit confusing. But nonetheless, it looks like uh, politicians are in quite a tiz about the extent of the uh, of the infiltration of uh, the US federal court system, which, you know, as we discussed at the time, is an excellent intelligence target because you get to see all sorts of stuff like sealed indictments. Yes, yeah, definitely a very, very juicy target. And the reporting we've got so far is not, as you say, not super detailed. Uh, they did say that it related to a vulnerability in the like case management electronic case file system itself, that they had discovered evidence of, you know, discovered the vulnerabilities and discovered evidence of it being used, which is, you know, does seem like a different and perhaps more, you know, finding bugs in a, in a bespoke system like that does feel a bit more targeted than, you know, something more broad that used software and that was available in a bunch of places like SolarWinds. So, yeah, we don't really know which, but either way, it's a great target. And, you know, now that it's getting this attention, maybe we'll, we will start to see whether or not there were two or more breaches. Because, hey, why not have more than one? Generally, you know, you roll IR, you find a bunch of people. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I feel could be a scenario here, which is there was some incident response and then, you know, oh my God, you know, <laughs> when yeah. the, the Mandiant uh, team rolls in with some laptops and then um, the computer starts throwing alerts. Um, that's, that's 
that's the vibe here, I think. Yeah, yeah, and that's a p- p- pretty common outcome. You know, when you start looking, you start finding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Adam Janowski at the record uh, has a write-up of a, of a story that's really done the rounds everywhere here in Australia, uh, which is that the Australian Federal Police arrested a 24-year-old in uh, Brisbane, Australia, uh, for uh, selling a Trojan, which looks like a pretty trash Windows Trojan, uh, that they were selling to, you know, people who wanted to spy on their exes and whatnot. You know, real grubby stuff. Uh, interestingly enough, though, Palo Alto Networks published an analysis of this thing back in like 2019. It basically doxed the guy. So it's kind of surprising that it's taken this long uh, for the AFP to bring a case against him. But yes, he has been arrested. He's facing uh, serious trouble, real jail time. Uh, you know, the, the reporting here says, oh, he faces up to 20 years in prison. People like this don't go to prison for 20 years in Australia, I'll just say that, but I think he might be looking down the barrel of a custodial uh, sentence. One thing I found interesting here is the, you know, as part of making the case, the federal police said, look, you know, of of his customers, you know, X hundred were actually involved in uh, domestic violence matters and things like that, right? So really making the case that this stuff was being sold for sinister purposes to sinister people, which I think is really the way you want to run a case like this. Yeah, this is pretty low end sort of malware, the sort of thing you'd buy, you know, 25 bucks on a hacker forum, um, which, you know, they reckon he made something like three to $400,000, which, you know, on a modern scale doesn't seem like a heap of money, but, you know, back in 2013, that's quite a lot. And as you say, like the sort of customers um, that were going to buy that stuff generally are just doing nasty, you know, you know, intimate things with it, like act spying on people very close to them. And it's just, yeah, horrid. So good angle to pursue and, you know, nice to see, you know, even if it is 10 years later, some justice, you know, getting done, hopefully. Yeah, now I'm going to link through uh, in this next story to some reporting from Catalan Kimpanu in the Risky Business News newsletter. And uh, yeah, so there's been a lot of news about this spyware maker DSIRF in Austria, uh, where, you know, Microsoft published a bunch of research on them. Uh, I saw some comments from DSIRF popping up saying, we only sell to EU member countries for law enforcement purposes. But um, Catalan's done a good job of actually highlighting some work in the German press uh, that's been published over the last year or so, which has uh, linked this company to Russian interests. So I just wanted to kind of, you know, give that uh, give that coverage a bit of a signal boost here, Adam. Yes, I mean they've been uh, seen operating in all sorts of markets around around Europe, and you know for quite a while, like going back, to, I think twenty sixteen um, was when they began, and yeah, finally being tied back to this organization uh, and. You know, the work that the German media has done, uh, certainly interesting. I mean, any one of these organisations, because there's so many kind of little ones that play such an important part and we spend so much time talking about NSO Group and, and you know, the bigger players, it's good to see some focus on some of these smaller ones because they're, you know, doing very real harm as well. Yeah, yeah. And look, anyone who's interested in this topic in particular, you probably want to subscribe to uh, the Risky Business News podcast feed because Tom, Uren and I have been talking a lot about this, uh, about legislative approaches to this sort of stuff as well. So, you know, you can hear us talk more about that on on that podcast, which is more targeted towards the government listeners. And look, staying on the topic, uh, uh, the Israeli police launched a probe some time ago and you and I spoke about it. Uh, they They launched a probe into perhaps some inappropriate use of NSO group tools within Israel by the police spying on, uh, you know, people who are politically opposed to the government and and those sorts of things. What's really funny is the, the probes come back and there's been some funny language in it, which is, you know, it was virtually all appropriate, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this really glass half full sort of statements. But it looks like indeed there was some inappropriate use of NSO group tools uh, within Israel's borders itself. 
Yeah, they, they seem to have argued that whilst the access was warranted, the level of data that they were collecting was beyond what was necessary, and that's the kind of line that they are that they're trying to walk here. Um, whether or not that you know changes how they would do this stuff in the future, I don't know. But yeah, it's just you know, there's, I guess there's no good press for NSO Group lately, and this doesn't really help um, you know help them at all. No, no, it doesn't. But it was uh, it was pretty funny watching the you know the the glass half full reporting on essentially <laughs> on a pretty negative finding. Uh, now looking yeah. some genuinely good news, and I'm not surprised to see this because uh, people would know I'm pretty regularly in touch with people who work at Proofpoint, and they'd told me about this already. But now they've actually released some hard numbers on it. But as soon as Microsoft's brought in that you know the VBA macro block by default thing, uh, attackers are just dropping them completely they're just not bothering with them really anymore um the usage of malicious macros is going through the floor yeah they've got some graphs which kind of show the number of campaigns using macro related techniques and yeah it starts to plummet when microsoft introduces those controls uh, and then they've also got corresponding increase uh, in campaigns that use the container-based options you know iso files link files uh, to bypass that those mark of the web controls uh, so yeah uh, clearly you know attackers are always going to adapt to what's around them but killing macros it's just been a, such a long time coming and it's nice to see you know, that we're finally at a point where that, you know, that technique can go die in a fire. Yeah, well, I'm glad they found a way to sort of, you know, just kill kill them by default, right? Because it makes them loss, a, a lot less effective. And you can see actually between October 21 and February this year, they the volumes uh, really went down. Like the number of campaigns using VBA macros really went down. And then there's a bounce from February to March this year. And it just... It's, it's sort of like a dead cat bounce. You can tell it's people, oh, no, we'll, we'll, we'll try it again. You know, they'll, they'll still work. And then it just, now it's just bleeding out, right? So, um, yeah, it certainly looks like it's all good news on that front. And it's a reminder that the, you know, the power of sensible defaults is um, uh, is great, right? So Yeah, definitely. There we go. Uh, now, someone <laughs> known as Pancake Stack uh, on Twitter is going around uh, basically just they've started a newsletter to go around and dox cybercrime operators, which, uh, you know, it's always a bit of fun. It's like intrusion truth, but for criminals. And um, I'm all there for it. Yeah, you definitely get the vibe of some frustrated security researchers. You know, people have been following this stuff around and they're not seeing enough action. You know, much like you get that vibe from Intrusion Truth of you know similar yeah. thing, but for for intelligence agency people. Um, but yeah, they published um, initially on Twitter and then started the Substack, which then Substack killed for doxing people. Um, but they seem you know kind of committed to that particular cause. And you know, as as with you, I'm here for this. Uh, I do hope their opsec is uh, you know is pretty pretty watertight because you know docs and criminals you know you are kind of taking you know you're taking shots of people who are, might be quite willing to come at you uh so you know, well perhaps right because i think you know a lot of these sort of um a lot of these sort of criminals if they're actually going to try to procure a murder via the dark web or something you know they're going to nine <laughs> times out of ten they're talking to the fbi right yes, so this, this is true yes you know true. i think it's good it's a good it's a good idea to have opsec if you're going to do stuff like this have good opsec but i don't think the risk is is um uh, particularly great. I did find it interesting, though, that one of the issues for doing this sort of doxing of criminals is that you're going to get kicked off Twitter. You're going to get kicked off Substack because doxing is doxing, right? And uh, the platforms don't like it. Yeah, you know, you do have to find, a, you know, another place to do it or another place to communicate this stuff. Uh, and then I guess there's also the risks of, you know, interfering with law enforcement ops or whatever else that, you know, you eh. have to be mindful of. Eh. But... You know, we're not, we're not exactly moving. You know, we're not moving on Russian crims anyway these days. So, exactly, you know, right. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, that's a thing. Bring back Paste Bin, man. I want to bring back the Paste Bin glory days. Yeah, there was always some good stuff on there. Yeah, our Paste Bin scraper used to find all sorts of you know wonderful treats for us to look yeah. at in the morning. Good times, good times. Good times. Uh, now we'll just do a bit of a ransomware wrap uh, now. And uh, Adam, you know, it's it's amazing, isn't it? When something hits, uh, something happens the first time, it's global news. Something happens the second time and no one ever really notices. But uh, the Black Cat ransomware crew has hit a pipeline in Luxembourg and a, a few little um, energy operators over there, actually. Yes, they appear to have stolen a bunch of data. They are saying that there's no connection to the, the you know actual operational systems, which is good. Uh, but yeah, you know, even when it's the same crew hitting, uh, you know, energy companies around the world doesn't get quite the same coverage. No, no, it does not. And what else have we got here? Thirty-four healthcare organisations affected by ransomware attack on one touch point. That's another one from Jonathan Grieg at the record. Uh, the American Dental Association, it had an attack back in April. They've now copped that being ransomware. Uh, we've got a ransomware group demanding half a million pounds from British schools. But the interesting thing is here, the attackers are actually saying, we know you have uh, ransomware insurance and it will cover half a million pounds. And, you know, I, I saw another story the other day. It's not linked to in the show notes, but I, I did see that now... Uh, it was either a blog post or a, or a tweet or something, but um, it, it, it looks like in the forums now, uh, some people are actually selling intelligence on the forums on what people's policies actually look like. So they'll say, you know, here's a, here's a shell at this organization and here's their insurance policy and this is how much you can get. Which it, which is pretty interesting, right? Talk about unintended consequences, eh? Like that's yeah, it's a smart move. Uh, and in this case, I think in the in the school, they've actually like emailed all the parents and said, "Hey, we're going to release your children's details um, if the school doesn't pay." And the school has half a million pounds worth of insurance coverage. So you know, really working that leverage. Yeah, by targeting the personal data of children because uh, they're just such wonderful, lovely people. Yeah. Who I do not hope die in a fire. Um, <laughs> okay, let's talk about something funny now, which is. Is the Wise Easy uh, payment terminal, Adam? This is an Android-based uh, digital payment terminal uh, that apparently, uh, you know, you you would call it centrally managed. Uh, I think that's the polite way to describe it. <laughs> yes, they, they have some kind of central admin console uh, for managing all of the payment terminals. And it's quite a big operator in the Asia-Pac region. Um, and yeah, somebody uh, had credentials on some web form. Uh, someone had posted credentials and access to uh, like an admin account on the web portal for this from whence you could like update the firmware and apps on these Android payment terminals, as well as actually pull out the Wi-Fi creds for the network uh, that the terminals are connected to. Uh, so yeah, that's not great. Um, the response to this also does not seem to have been uh, super well managed. Um, so yeah, the, the screenshots of this compromise make it look pretty bad, but the company behind it uh, has basically said that everything's fine and they've added two-factor and um, don't worry about it. Yeah, so it was username and password protection on a control panel that gave you full access to 140,000 payment terminals yes. around the world. And, uh, you know, it was just one of these dark web monitoring companies that happened to notice a threat on it yeah. in a forum. Well, there's definitely some uh, some gold to be mined in those dark web hells. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We don't know how much, uh, you know, whether this has been accessed by other people or exactly what happened uh, around it, but... Yeah. That's a lot of payment terminals. Yeah, it is. It's just one of those stories you read it and you just sort of facepalm uh, a little yeah. bit. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, in a similar vein, uh, we've seen some forum posts uh, being unearthed uh, where someone is trying to sell access to, you know, 50 American companies through some sort of um, uh, compromise at a managed security provider. 
Yeah, they were posting on the forum saying, hey, we've got an MSP, they've got, you know, 50, 60 customers, you know, we've got access to, you know, 100 ESX boxes with a 1,000 machines. Uh, does anyone want to help monetizing this? Because actually it's quite a lot of work going downstream, you know, from an MSP and actually turning that into money or ransoms or, or whatever else, whatever other, you know, data theft you're going to do. But they did say they would like to keep a very big cut given they've done all the hard work of compromising yes. MSP first. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, to what degree do you think people really have to think about, uh, you know, protecting themselves against their own MSPs, right? Because I, I think the MSPs, are, you know, protecting yourself against a typical vendor is something that people might consider, but the MSPs job is so that you don't really have to do that. They're supposed to do that for you. Yes, I mean, there's no no good way to give somebody else, you know, domain admin or control of your core business tools or your email. Like this particular company ran like hosted Exchange and hosted SharePoint, right? There's no way to do that uh, and not just kind of trust them. Um, so then you're into, you know, visibility of their systems, visibility of their controls, you know, them sharing security reports and stuff with their customers. And that's not a thing that we generally see people asking for up front during the sales cycle. And then they have no real ability to do that after, you know, you've signed on because you're kind of trapped on the platform. So it's a real difficult place to be as a as a customer of those organizations. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, what else have we got here? German prosecutors have uh, issued a warrant for a Russian uh, hacker from one of the bears, which bear, uh, Berserk Bear, yeah. Berserk so this bear. is a, um, you know, an FSB APT crew, and uh, it's interesting, right? Because this was something that the Americans started doing some years ago, which was, um, uh, you know, uh, indictments for for um, you know foreign government hackers, and um, you know, it's it's a trend that's finally catching on. Let's just put it that way. Yes, and it's good to see other people taking it on board. Whether it's been effective in stopping you know nation state actors uh, from continuing their jobs, we don't know. In fact. This guy um, was one of the ones indicted by the US Department of Justice um, previously. So I guess he's kept his job and kept on going, didn't really take the warning to heart. Yeah, yeah. So someone of the same name was indicted by the uh, US DOJ. Um, so, yeah, lots of indictments for you, Guy. I think, <laughs> I think really if these things become so very standard, uh, I think it could have an effect on recruitment, if I'm honest. I do. I, and that's been an argument people have, been, have made to me in the past and I haven't been completely convinced by it. But if you basically start realising that if you go to work for one of these organisations, there's a solid chance you'll never be able to go overseas. Um, I think for a young person in particular, that's not, you know, that's not something you'd be happy about. Yeah, I think, you know, over the long term, that would have an impact on on recruitment. And certainly we see, you know, people considering if you're going to go work in a Five Eyes intelligence agency, you know, considering what that means for your travel opportunities and things, you know, plus the pay isn't necessarily always competitive with overseas options. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the long term, if we keep doing this, then yes, I can imagine it having an effect on recruitment. Now, we've got another one from the record here. And yeah, just a lot of stories from the record in this week's uh, run sheet. So a big uh, big shout out to the team uh, over at the record. This one's from Andrea Peterson. And uh, she's just written up an interview with a satellite security expert who's basically talking about some of the issues involved in commercial satellite insecurity and sort of lack of regulation in the space. One thing that I caught, though, in this, in this interview, which is more or less, you know, it's just a feature... But the guy talks about hacks against satellites that I didn't, I, I don't remember hearing about before. And then there's a link in the in the story uh, through to a book extract on Google Books where they talk about uh, attacks against satellites in 2008, where someone managed to get control of them but didn't execute any commands. It was just like a proof of concept sort of thing. Um, not much of a you know 
not many citations there really, but um, but yeah, certainly certainly an interesting little thing to be um uh, to dig out of this story. Uh, but you also found it interesting for for some different reasons, didn't you? Yes, I mean I'm always interested in, in satellite security, and obviously we've talked about the you know the importance of uh, Starlink in Ukraine as well. Um, so definitely a focus topic at the moment. But uh, you were mentioning last week about how uh, you know when the NSA puts out guidance about a particular thing, even when it, we were talking about the UFI BIOS, you know, kind of malware and things last week. You know, when they do that. Often it's for a good reason, and even if that reason is not immediately apparent, you know, maybe we should pay some attention. And the uh, NSA had actually just recently put out um, some guidance about securing securing satellite systems, securing traffic running over satellite systems uh, with no other real context. So, you know, the interesting data point, uh, you know. Yeah, well, and that was operator. before the Viasat hack too. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe they had some had some insight there. So yes, if your satellite operator uh, certainly worth thinking about, you know, if they're, if they're pointing at the Securitons, then might be for a reason. And some of these things are you know issued commands in the clear, right? Yes, I mean there hasn't really been a requirement for cryptography on the command channels for satellites. You know, the FCC has been mulling that for a long time, but you know, have never actually mandated it. And you can kind of see why. You know, if your certificate expires, you know, on your satellite out in geostationary, then it's not like you can just rock over there to the console and, and you know reboot it and stick a new cert in. So you know, availability, I can see why. Um, but yeah, we you know this is an area of focus, and it's also an area where commoditization and use of you know more general purpose computing tech that's more widely accessible you know is increasing in satellite systems so you know there's a you know a lot of opportunity there i think given you know how fast that sector has grown yeah i mean i just would have thought a symmetric key would do the trick but hey i'm not an expert <laughs> <laughs> but, i mean then the password will be like you know satellite one and you know, yeah 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 no i know what you mean satellite one <laughs> two three um <laughs> another one from adam janowski uh over at the record and a couple of disgruntled ex-employees have been arrested for doing something quite dumb adam Yes, uh, Spain has a network across the country for monitoring uh, gamma radiation so they can detect, you know, there's issues with a nuclear power system or anything else going wrong. Um, and, yeah, these people uh, who used to work, I think, at a contractor that maintained this system broke into the control system for this, you know, monitoring network of 800 sensors around the country and then disabled about 300 of them um, for reasons unknown. I don't know how disgruntled you can be, you know, when you operate a radiation monitoring network, but like, clearly they were upset about something. Um, so, yeah, Spanish police... Uh, uh, have raided their houses, found some evidence, uh, and uh, yeah, they're going to be. I can't imagine that like a court would be particularly forgiving about this kind of thing. No, I don't think they're going to have a particularly good time either. Now, mate, that's actually it for this week's news because, of course, in the lead up to Vegas, things usually go a little bit spooky quiet, don't they? Yeah, everyone's saving all the good stuff, you know, for the big onstage reveals of Black Hat and DEFCON and all of the other, you know, sort of surrounding events uh, in Vegas. And then we have a, you know, a flurry of things to dig through and uh, understand the importance of afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, fun, always fun times, though. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are not going and uh, we will not be doing shows the next two weeks while everyone's busy uh, dealing with all of that. I'm actually taking my, uh, my family somewhere warm uh, to have my first real holiday. Uh, actually, since 2019, I had a few days somewhere nice down by the beach when I was in Brazil, but uh, was working and onboarding cattle and stuff. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, uh, actually having a, a genuine break. Um, it, it is sad to be missing Vegas this year, though, isn't it? It's, I, I feel like it's, you know, we're not quite at the point where traveling through the tail end, hopefully the tail end of this pandemic is, is straightforward yet. So I just feel like that distance of travel is just a bit risky at the moment. 
Yeah, the amount of travel and you know all of the other circumstances in Vegas, all the people and everything. You know, that's uh, that's where it's really hard. Uh, you know, to keep your distance and mask and all those sorts of things. So yeah, it's pretty hard. Well, also, if you get COVID, you can't fly home, and you know, and, flights are being cancelled left and right, and everyone's luggage yeah. is getting lost. Like it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a real tough time. A few of my lot are going, so I'll you know get to live vicariously uh, through their fun Vegas times. But yeah, not not for me this year. Yeah, so uh, two weeks off for us. Uh, but Adam, uh, looking forward already to chatting to you again in three weeks' time, and we get to recap uh, all of the good stuff that will no doubt uh, happen at Vegas. But um, yeah, great uh, great to chat to you again this week, my friend, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then. <laughs> That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Jared Chong, the Chief Solutions Officer with Ubico. And we're talking about how consumer web authn solutions so far aren't really suitable for enterprise and critical use cases. Uh, so Apple's passkeys are an example that Jared uses. And, uh, you know, that's what they call their WebAuthn implementation. And passkeys are absolutely fabulous. Uh, but you can also synchronize them across devices that belong to the same iCloud account, which isn't really what you're going to want uh, in an enterprise context. But from a UX perspective, um, they're absolutely fantastic. So yeah, the point Jared makes when he brings this up is the use cases for WebAuthn uh, in consumer stuff just aren't the same as the Ubico use case, which is high assurance authentication. You know, there is the the user experience and convenience use case uh, in, in the case of the Apple stuff. And then there's the the more high security use case. So look, I know it is kind of self-serving when a Ubico person says you're probably better off using the Ubico product, uh, but I do actually agree with Jared on this and I think he does a good job backing up what he says here. So here's Jared Chong making good points. Enjoy. I think it's really exciting that, you know, you have a huge tech giant like Apple embracing the underlying technology, right? Because we talk about FIDO, but what we're really talking about is it's really the next generation of authentication protocol that is resistant to phishing, right? So at, at some high level, that is it is a very positive thing where you kind of embrace that as, yes, there's a better way to do things uh, rather than getting an SMS code. So we absolutely embrace that. And I think the context as it pertains to Apple's implementation of Palski really boils down to their business model and how they I- interpret the the adoption of uh, Apple technology, which is if you wanted to use passkeys in the context of Apple, then having that tied to an iCloud really makes sense because, again, today you are already synchronizing some credentials with various keychains on maybe your iPhone and your iPad and your Mac and you know things like that. So really taking that up level, which is like, why do we need to synchronize um, passwords, which is where we started? We can actually synchronize something else uh, much more, I, I think, um, future, future generation type. So FIDO obviously is, is the key word here, but it's passkeys is the implementation that Apple started last year. I think we're most excited because of the scale that this can impact a lot of users. But I think where we also are trying to educate everyone is that it may not be for everything that you may want to do as you described because to some level then you are just um, requiring that your users are managing the iClouds and so now now you are putting the not the burden but the responsibility to the end user 
to make sure that it's, their hygiene is clean with iCloud. And so you, you, you need to think about scenarios where they are sharing their iCloud accounts, which we know happens. Um, they are you know, providing it to maybe other users that they may not, they may, you may not want to uh, as a kind of family, right? So those are the considerations that really need to be thought through. But more importantly, not just from a security perspective, but just from a, just from a practical perspective, if let's say an enterprise said, you know, you're allowed to use passkeys with Apple in your iCloud, when you need to actually recover the account, it's really on the onus of the user working with Apple. Like there's no mm. control that an enterprise says, you know, I, I will help you reset it. There's no such thing anymore. It's like, uh, we can't help you. Please go talk to Apple to help you reset your iCloud account. So there are some practical implications to then allowing for this model. And I think enterprises need to understand that nuance. It seems, you know, trivial to some extent, but when you actually practically have to implement it, you have to run into those scenarios and you have to be very prescriptive of what do you tell the end users to do um, in, in certain contexts, which is you can't help them anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th surely there's going to be ways to handle that because if you're a bank, right, and you're offering passkey access to your web application, you know, there, there's going to have to be a way for people to reestablish their passkeys or whatever when they get a, a new phone or, you know, something changes or they get locked out of their iCloud account. So, I mean, I, I do wonder what that's going to look like. Yeah, so you, if you take away the iCloud passkey conversation for a moment, then you look around. How many financial institutions have allowed for sign-in with, say, Meta slash Facebook? And the answer to that question really determines how a lot of businesses are thinking about it, right? So, I, I, well, personally, I'm, I'm not able to sign in with any social media platform to get to my bank. Just, mm. just, just it's very direct, right? I, I, I don't have, I mean, I have several accounts in different, different banks, but none of them allow me to sign in, so, in the social accounts, right? So there is a reason for that, right? There's a, definitely a reason for that. So I think... Yes, I think ultimately that we will evolve to, to several uh, iterations where it makes sense and, and we can control, again, at the end of the day, it's an account lifecycle problem uh, in terms of control, but it's, it's a non-trivial problem, right? So even today, mm -hmm. take away passkeys and iCloud. When was the last time you logged in a bank and said, I want to log in with a Facebook account? We see that a lot yeah. with... Uh, you know, buying groceries and things like that, right? Not, not, nothing against that type of application. But nothing that's sort of high assurance. Right? Exactly, right? So, and yeah. there's a reason why high assurance has a certain bar. And it's because you, you, there's several factors, right? You, you, you need to trust the authentication methodology. You have to trust the authenticator to some extent. And you actually need to know what is being used, right? So in the, in, in the current model where we have uh, implementation of Paskis and Apple and iCloud, there's, there's no attestation. I mean, it's just in the current plans, anyway, that Apple have, have articulated that there are no attestation. What that means is that, you know, over time, you wouldn't know whether you created that credential for iCloud or some other software application. And so those are the, you know, and it may not matter for certain user populations. Like, you know what, it doesn't matter. It's better than passwords, and we understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, but in high assurance, right? but in China, I mean, yeah, it's true, because we want to get away from passwords. That's, that's, that's what we want to go as an industry. Yeah. But in, in higher assurance situations, in compliance situations, in regulated environments, uh, that can matter a lot. 
So I think I think the industry, it's there's no panacea, there's no silver bullet for anything that we bring to the market. It's all about what problem are we trying to solve for what type of users. And I think that the current iteration of what we call uh, multi-device passkeys, which is synchronizable, copyable, and shareable, uh, serve a certain purpose, right? Whereas, well, I think yeah. I think what you're you're pointing out, right? And I think this is interesting because I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about uh, Passkey or Apple's implementation of this stuff. It's pretty new, right? There's a lot of stuff yeah, going absolutely. on, but just listening to you speak about it, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that it's a convenience feature. Right, So it certainly is going to make life a lot more convenient when it comes to logging into certain services and you get security uplift out of it as well. But I guess the point you're making, and it's, I mean, now that I'm listening to you, I agree with it, is that that's not going to be something that's going to replace something like a YubiKey for a, you know anyone with a privileged account in an enterprise. It's just not designed for that really, which makes sense given Apple's, Apple's priority is to provide a, a great user experience to their, to their customers. Absolutely, you, you hit it in the nail, and that's and that's why I think when we look at it, it's it's not like YubiKeys versus Apple Passkeys or something like that, right? I mean, they they both serve different purpose, and but ultimately we need to uplift everything, and so high assurance is important, ease of use and 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 convenience is is also important to for scale, and they just serve different purposes, and the reality is that. You know, to some extent, a lot of the relying parties and services have to make those decisions. And for many of them, they could offer both. And then just depending on the user journey they want to create, they, they give choice. And choice is always good for end users. I really believe that choice is the fundamental reason how a technology becomes uh, more mature when you have more people embracing it. And so when you give yeah. choice, people would say, you know what, it's finally time I not use the password, which is what we want. Yeah, I feel like we're on the cusp of the Fido auth era at the moment. This is a conversation you and I were just having before we before we hit record because you look at these fish kits now that have just got so slick at doing uh, at doing OTP based uh, uh, phishing. You know, like it's just it's a standard part of the toolkit these days where you can grab a session and and you know even stuff like um, impossible login checks and whatnot. Attackers are getting. Uh, you know, location-based uh, analysis of logins. Um, attackers are actually getting pretty good at, at bypassing that as well. So it really does feel like we've kind of exhausted uh, all of our authentication options. And, to, and, and you know, even with stuff like Duo Push, we saw APT crews and also, you know, hacker kids just doing the thing where they flood people with push notifications until they get sick of it and just hit yes. So... I guess what I'm getting at is, is it feels like we've exhausted all other authentication options and FIDO is basically the last, last thing left standing that doesn't look trivially bypassable. Well, I think we've been talking about this for I don't know how many sessions now. Every time we say it's here or is it not here. No, but I mean, I, I, feel, like it, I feel like it's been a good idea for a long time. I definitely feel that, but I feel like the next two years, it's like people are just going to have to pull the trigger, right? And we even just saw like the best case study was this, what happened in Ukraine where uh, Ukraine asked Yubico for some YubiKeys and Yubico's response was, okay, we'll give you 20,000 of them. Give us your mailing address. And uh, they have managed to roll out uh, so many of them to, to uh, stave off uh, spear phishing from their neighbor to the east. You know, and this was just a great example of how quickly you can 
actually roll on a program like this. It, it's, it's a case study for the ages. But I feel like just more and more, this is something we're going to see, which is organizations doing huge uptake of stuff like YubiKeys uh, or Titan Keys, your competitors, right? Like, mm-hmm. I just feel like this is going to become a priority project over the next two years. I think the time horizon's definitely been brought forward. Yeah, I, I think there are two things that, that you can view as a tipping point. The scale of the attacks are are no longer um, script kiddies, as as you can, but but it's also weaponized in a way that is so easy, as as you've described. But the thing about sometimes the technology isn't about the technology itself, and it isn't just about the awareness. And one of the things that really made a difference in sort of the adoption is policy. And it's important to understand that in the dynamics of you know not just services but enterprise adoption that you don't want to implement the best technology and be out of compliance, right? So I think in the last two years, what you have seen or what we have seen is policy catching up, which is okay to do FIDO, by the way, and I will pass, and you will pass the audit. And that to me is really a huge tipping point because you can say that many technologies are mature and they have done the great job and then you say, why are they not being adopted? Then you can say, yeah, market factors and things like that and maybe the attacks were you know, getting, evolving or whatever. But to some level, there needs to be a push that you fail something like a compliance check, then you take action. So we are actually seeing the market evolve pretty quickly ever since we had the, you know, executive order in the US, but it's not just the US. You can see a cascading set of things happening where FIDO is mentioned in policy and regulation. That matters. That matters to the implementers, because they actually cannot pull the trigger sometimes because if they implement it, it's like you implement it and I've got the best technology, but then I don't have, I'm not certified and I fail my compliance. So to me, that tipping point started about maybe about a year ago. And so now you're seeing this not afraid to pull the trigger because sometimes it is about that. <laughs> I'm afraid to pull the trigger. I pull the trigger, but it's more work for me because I failed the compliance and I got to do all these mitigating controls and blah, blah, blah. So that to me is that huge tipping point. We really saw that happen uh, about about a year a year ago. So we are we're here now because major policies has changed as an industry. All right, Jared Chong, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show to uh, to walk through all of that. Um, yeah, very interesting stuff, and um, certainly interesting to talk about the the Apple Passkey stuff because I've been wondering how that might work in an enterprise context. Um, cheers. Thank you very much, Patrick. That was Jared Chong from Ubico there with a chat about why consumer-grade web authent implementations might not be the enterprise tool that you are looking for, uh, at least yet. Big thanks to Ubico for being a risky business sponsor. And uh, yeah, Ubikeys, I use them, I love them, and you should have one. Uh, but that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with an episode of Seriously Risky Business with Tom Uren. Uh, that podcast is published to the Risky Business News podcast feed. Uh, but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.